Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. You would be bringing your freedom, your love, your grace, all the good things that you are choosing and and, uh, pouring out on us. Give him insight and wisdom, Father, in his study that he's done to this point, but also give him wisdom and insight in um, just right now, in the, in the moment. Holy Spirit, we ask you to touch him, to bring things together in his heart and his mind, to, to, to knit things together in a great way so that we hear your heart and your blessing and your freedom for us. So we just give you praise and honor and glory today, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cal. So this Sunday we are starting a new series on the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians 5. And uh, we're basically going to do one fruit per week for the next uh, handful of weeks. So I don't know if you guys listened to much pop music back in the 1990s, but uh, there was a popular song in 1993 by an artist named Hathaway that the very first line goes, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Maybe you guys remember that. Maybe you don't. But um, in Galatians 5, the very first fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we have to ask that question. What is love? Because in English, we could say something like, I love my cat. Or, I love pizza. Do I love pizza the same way I love my cat? Or, I love my house. I love my house the same way that I love pizza or the way I love my cat. I love my wife. I love my wife the same way I love my house or my cat. And I think the answer to most of that is no. And uh, there's one, I, don't, I can't quote the person, but uh, I heard this phrase. And it's a really good phrase. You know a word's meaning by the company it keeps. So if you look it in the context, you can figure it out. But uh, to the Greeks... They weren't so like, hey, context this. They, they really spelled things out. I mean, like if you, if you think about if you've ever tried to study Greek, and how meticulous, and how detailed it is. You would see that, it's probably one of the most advanced languages uh, that's ever been there. I mean, like more advanced than English, more advanced than Hebrew uh, for certain, uh, because everything is so spelled out. And the way it's structured, it, it eliminates a lot of like mental doubt because it, it's very spelled out in particular. Like I could take, a, I could take um, say John 3.16, right? Uh, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, in English, you have to have those words in that order. Because I couldn't go something like, for whoever believes in God so loved the world because it would just totally mess up the meaning of the sentence. But in Greek, you can mix all of that around and it still has the same meaning. Um, it's called an inflected language. I'm not going to get into the grammar, but Greek's kind of cool. You, you, you have to go out of your way to mess up the Greek. And that's just... And what a... What a what an example of God's perfect wisdom that he begins to reveal his, like, like the final touches of his redemption plan in a time 
when the most common language spoken throughout the, the biggest part of uh, the world was Greek, as opposed to Hebrew, as opposed to Aramaic, as opposed to English, where we can muddle the words. I mean, like, how many criminals are getting off of the justice system because the words got muddled in the testimony, right? But God uses this highly advanced, extremely precise language to reveal his truth in the New Testament. What an amazing wisdom from God to do that, so that it minimizes any ability uh, for us to muddle it up, because his word and his promises are so important in the eyes of eternity that it needs to be preserved as exactly as it can. Okay, that's my little exposition on Greek. So having said all of that, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, the Greeks had five words for love. And each one had a different meaning. And there is some overlap. I mean, if I were to make it a Venn diagram, you know, with all the circles and stuff, you could see that. <clears throat> one we tend to leave out, um, epithumia, uh, is, is like the strong passion. A lot of times in the Bible that gets translated as lust. So for the most part, whenever we see uh, the word epithumia in the Bible, we tend to translate it in a negative way. So we tend not to focus too much on that one. But there are four uh, other Greek words that we can come across. And the first one is agape. Most of you have probably heard agape. You've probably heard sermons on agape and what that means. And the, the basic definition, so I actually went back and pulled out my Greek dictionary, you know, that pulls out the context of the Greek uh, in the New Testament. There are a couple of, of definitions. The first one is the quality of warm regard warm regard for an interest in another. So it's an other-focused type of love, a quality love that's outward-focused. <coughs> Could use the words esteem, affection, regard, love. Um, in a lot of contexts in the Bible, it's in reference to a human love, so a human regard for another human. And so agape can be a human-to-human -human relational uh, regard or, or interest or concern for the well-being of somebody else. The other context in agape in the Bible is the love of God, between the love of God and the love of Christ. So God the Father and Jesus the Son. Uh, that, that, that is also uh, a connotation, uh, an aspect of agape love. So that's the, the first main definition. The second one, uh, agape is a common meal eaten by early Christians in connection with their worship. Maybe you guys have heard of agape feasts. If you've read the book of Jude, right, or the, the letter of Jude, the 23 verses of Jude, because it's a very short, probably one of the shortest books in the Bible, he talks about these agape feasts, these love feasts. And that's not like a hippie love feast from like Woodstock. This is like a, a Christian gathering where they would call them agape feasts because they'd come together as believers and share a meal together, share a worship experience together. Um, and, and that was kind of the crux of what the Wednesday night Bible study became. Like the, like, like the word that came to Byron and Nancy was, you feed them physically and I will feed them spiritually. And so for every Wednesday, there was a meal that was followed by worship and some sort of a devotion or a testimony and then prayer time. I mean, I, I, there's several Wednesdays I've been there till midnight and beyond. Uh, because of this whole uh, aspect. So that's agape. That's, that's just one. And I'm going to try to go through these a little bit quicker because I 
because we need to shorten the time for uh, the, the, the words today. The second one is Eros. Um, you've probably heard of Eros. It's the romantic love. That's the sexual love. That's where we get the term like erotic from. And so there's this Eros love. Now it's not always just like Eros is the sex love. That's, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. It doesn't have to have a sexual element to it. There, there is this, this uh, love connection between two people. Uh, but we tend to minimize it to just romance and love and sex. And then there's philia, right? Or, or phileo, uh, Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. And the definitions for that is to have a special interest in someone or something with a focus on close association. So if I'm really close to a coworker, that would be like a, a philia love. If I'm close to like a, my neighbor, that would be like a, a philia type of love. Uh, so you have affection for, you like them, you consider somebody a friend. And it can also mean brotherly love or mutual affection. So that's a philia. So some common terms that we would associate with that, friendship, loyalty to friends, family and community. It requires virtue, equality, and familiarity. So you, you kind of have like this intimate knowledge of somebody. That's, you kind of know each other, uh, and you're kind of devoted to each other. And then you have this other one that you don't really see in the, in the New Testament, but it's, it's pretty prevalent in the Greek uh, literature. There's another one called storge. And storge is basically summed up as the love of family uh, or a fondness for the familiar. So it's not, it's not the, the father-son relationship. It's not the, the mother-daughter relationship. That's, that's not just storge. It's also it's, it's the familiarity, right? So the, whenever Aletheia was born, she was born into a household that already had uh, Shannon, myself, Elora and Finian. For Aletheia, those four people already existed in her world the day she was born. So us four are going to be this familiar atmosphere for Aletheia. And so that we're going to become storge in a sense because we're, we're like this constant presence in her day-to-day -day life. It could also be applied to the apple tree that grows in the backyard. It's always been there. Every time you look out the window, there's that apple tree, there's that familiarity, and there's like, oh, there's the apple tree. Storge, right? So those are the, the major types of love that we see in Greek, and we see more in the New Testament of some than others. So we're doing Galatians 5, right? We're doing the, the fruit of the Spirit, so it's starting in verse 22. So what I'm going to do is start with verse 16, read through uh, to verse 23, just to give us a context. Um, and then uh, we'll get into some bits. So starting in verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evidence. So these are deeds which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, 
that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 22, he brings the flip side. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's no law against loving people, being patient with people, being kind to people. And he goes on to say, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, of the definitions of love that I gave from the Greek, which one would you say is Paul using in this passage? Would we say it's storge love, philia love, eros love, agape love, epithumia? Which one do we think it would be? Okay, so anybody else? Agape, any other thoughts? Okay. You're right, it is agape. It's this warm regard for an interest in another. It's this other focus. And this idea of love is described as a love between, like I said, Jesus and the Father. It's a love that seeks out the betterment in the interest of others. So what makes agape love a fruit of the Spirit? Because it existed before the Greeks knew about the Holy Spirit, right? So agape was already there. It's, it's a human experience element. So what makes agape love a fruit of the Spirit? We're going to unpack that. And we're going to do that by looking at 1 Corinthians 13. Because, like, more than any other word in this thing, like, we don't have another chapter, a whole chapter devoted to defining what one of these words are. Agape love is, is the only one that really does that, and that's 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to break that down to give us a good definition of what this agape love is in the biblical perspective and in Paul's point of view. Starting, uh, I think it's, it's verse 1, let's see here, 6, 5, or verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Well, it sounds like the list that we already just went through, right? Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act disgracefully, it does not seek its own benefit, it is not provoked, does not keep an account of wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, I just lost my place, it will be done away with. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfection comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. The greatest of these is love. Let's take that list of what's described in love and break that down a little bit. First, love is patient. It sees things from another person's perspective, right? So one of the, one of the regards of, of impatience, right? One of, the, one of the, in my own experience, one of the reasons I get impatient is because I've put a restriction on myself. I put a deadline on myself. I've put a goal on myself, 
and somebody else is in my way. Something else is in my way. And that tends to be the seat of my impatience. You know, if one of those things, I, I remember hearing this years ago, uh, that if you wanted to actually work on your patience, try staying behind somebody who's driving slow. Like 10 miles under the speed limit. When you got to be somewhere where you want to work on your patience, stay behind them and try not to get angry. And it will also reveal to you how impatient you are. Right? Because we, we get so stuck in the here and now, sucked into our own world, our own way of thinking, and our own mind, that everything else is just in my way. Why don't they just hurry up and get out of my way so I can do what I need to do? Right? That's kind of the seed of impatience. So love is being the opposite of that, right? So this agape love, this other focused, if I'm driving behind somebody who's 10 miles under the speed limit, maybe I need to stop and, and think, what if that is the safest speed they can drive without causing harm to somebody else? Given like whatever their driving capabilities are, what if their car is got the, red, the, the gas light on and they need to keep the RPMs down so they don't run out of gas before they can get to the gas station? There's a, there's a whole other world going on outside of my own experience that would behoove me to consider when I'm tempted to become impatient. I'm learning that with uh, my oldest kid. She, I mean, in some ways, she's just like me. She's in her own world, like oblivious to everything else. And so she'll be in her own world playing with something. And I'll be like, Ellie, we got to go. Get, go get your shoes on. And she won't even acknowledge me. And it's not that she can't hear me. It's that she's so trapped in her world that, like, she's, she's busy. You know, and, and like, I'm like, oh, we, we, we got to get to church by like, you know, 9.30 or whatever the time is. Get your shoes on, you know, You're like you get impatient with them. And, uh, and they're just like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, like anybody that's had kids, no, I'm like, what, what's going on? Uh, and so there's this understanding where she's at. And I, and I, I try to work at that because she's like me. I get the way she thinks, right? Like she needs transition time. I need transition time. I can't just like come out of work and go straight into like uh, parenting mode. I need like 10 minutes. Give me 10 minutes to transition. Glad to, to take over child duty. Let me have some transition, right? Uh, I don't pivot very fast. Uh, and so, but if I get that transition time, I can be fully present, be totally there. And she's the same way. And so trying to work on that patience, because it's not, she's not willfully disobeying. Well, sometimes she does, but like in these instances, it's not a willful disobedience. It's, she's already, like, stuck in this, this mode. She needs some transition time to do this. And understanding her perspective will help me be more patient with her and be a lot less short with her and a lot less, like, frustrated with her. And so I'm learning, too. Like, I don't, I don't have all this. I'm not perfect, right? I'm still learning this process as well. So that's patience. And the loving way to be with her is to see her perspective so that I can work with her in that transition. The next is kind. Uh, whenever we interact with people, most of our interactions are just a snapshot of somebody's life context, right? We, if you're in the store and then you just hear somebody go off on the cashier in a very unkind way, it, it's tough. Like I've, I've been that cashier. I've had people go off on me for 
being like not having corn on the shelf or something, whatever, whatever they came out there specifically to do, and we happen to be sold out of, and now it's my fault because I'm the I'm the representation of the company, right? And so there's a snapshot. I don't know what that context is in their life, right? I don't know what led up to this. There could have been a million other things that went wrong with this person's uh, routine or whatever before that final straw that broke the camel's back, and they just go off and. me as a Christian is to not repay that kind of um, short-temperedness with another response of short-temperedness, right? It's our job as Christians to kind of transcend that and to be unmoved by that because they, at that, at that particular point, and whenever we do this too, at that particular point, they become almost a victim of their circumstances, and when we get short-tempered, it's because we're a victim of our circumstances. The other day, I went to go get uh, some hot dogs from the restaurant for the kids, and I ordered a pizza puff for myself. All the way home, and there wasn't a pizza puff in the bag. I was, I'm, not, I'm still pretty frustrated about it, but I'm mad. But uh, it's like I, I, knew, I know it's an honest mistake, and I just, I just ate the cost, mostly because I didn't want to go back out and get this pizza puff. Because I knew if I did, I'd get more angry, and then I'd be short with the workers, and I, I just didn't want that. I, just, I don't have the energy for that. You know, i got three kids to take care of. I, I don't have the energy to go off on somebody. Just eat the cost. Let them have their, their hot dogs. But it, it, it and that was an, an active thing that I did because I didn't want to come across somebody as unkind, and I knew that there would be a very good temptation to be unkind in that situation. Could I have done it and forced Yes, I just wasn't there at that moment and acknowledging my, my shortcomings in that. It says, love is not jealous. Uh, and this starts with, uh, jealousy starts with a lack of thankfulness. Scripture talks a lot about the importance of thank thankfulness. Jealousy comes from a lack of thankfulness from the blessings we do have, what God has provided us for. Um, that's where jealousy comes from. It's you know, and that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't envy your neighbor's house. Don't neighbor, envy your neighbor's wife, right? It's not, it's a focus on what you don't have instead of uh, the blessings that you do have. And so love, this agape love, chooses not to focus on the lack, focuses on the blessings and the provision. It's just, a, it's a way of thinking things. Love doesn't brag. It doesn't need to prove itself, Right? People who brag are trying to, to fill some sort of like ego in their mind. Like they're trying to fill some need that's not getting met. There's an insecurity there, so they have to brag about how great they did this or, or brag about how awesome they are on this or maybe how much money they make. And love doesn't need to brag. It doesn't need to prove itself. It doesn't need to assert dominance or anything like that. Uh, and so there's, there's no ego attached to agape love. And that's something that we as Christians are called is to, to put down that, that ego and getting our value on things like that. And it's not arrogant. It doesn't have this need to elevate itself or, or, or be elevated in the eyes of others. It's just, it's, it's a total acknowledgement of who we are in Christ, a solid knowledge of our identity in that, and then making peace with that and walking in that is the best we can, you know, like that we're unflapped by anybody else's exploits or or blessings that we're just like, you know what? 
I'm with God. The Lord's taking care of me. We're good. Right? It, it doesn't, it's not arrogant. It doesn't have to show off. It doesn't, love doesn't act disgracefully. It's respectful in every interaction. And that's something that we strive to grow in, is that we can be respectful in every interaction. And it doesn't seek its own benefit. So agape love is this um, sacrifice that we do for the betterment, betterment of another. Uh, and so that's, some people are out there for all they can get. And that's contrary to agape love. Agape love is seeking the betterment of others. Now, why would, why would we want to talk about, why is this important in the Bible? Because when Jesus taught, he said it's better to give than to receive. Now, the context in Luke on that is not about money. It's about forgiveness. So he goes, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Give forgiveness, right? Give for the betterment of somebody else. And what will come back to you? Forgiveness, a betterment for you, a good measure, pressed down, running together, uh, shaken together, and running over. And so there's this, this abundance that comes from God to us as we sacrifice for the betterment of others. Love is not provoked. It isn't driven to hasty or reactive behavior. So agape love, if you notice, like Jesus, he, he didn't go off the handle in an uncontrolled way, right? So did he flip the tables and chase people with whips in the temple? Yes, he did. But it wasn't because he felt slighted, and it wasn't because he was personally insulted. It was because holy items were being made a mockery of. And so, and, and you can notice, like, even, even in that, it was, it was a controlled behavior. He never went off the handle. And so, it's not, love is not provoked. It, it has this agape love, right, that, that Paul's talking about. It's got such a view of the power of eternity in the kingdom of heaven that it understands that everything we, we experience here on earth is just a passing phase that that eternal love will endure far beyond that experience. And it doesn't keep a record of, wrong, of wrongs, right? It's just like water off of a duck's back. Uh, there's no mental checklist to correct your spouse. Well, you didn't do this, and you didn't do this, and you didn't do this, and you didn't do this. That's not agape love. Agape love is like, if you encounter something, hey, spouse didn't do this right, for me, I'd be like, okay, maybe Shannon didn't do this, and I was kind of expecting it to be done. Even though I didn't say it, right? If I didn't say it, I can't really hold her accountable for it. can't be frustrated by it. And, you know, there's this other focus. She's taking care of three kids all day long, right? And like, I take care of them for like two hours, and I forget to do a thousand things. And like, there's a whole other focus, not just what I want done for me. So something is wrong, you don't keep a record of it. You don't hold that grudge. You just... You let it go, you put it on the cross, and you move on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, uh, I, I received a report from my managers that there were like six complaints about me in the school buildings with my IT services. Like six complaints? Well, at the end of the day, it turned out to be one person who cataloged six things that I didn't do the way the previous technicians used to do. 
you know what? The issue was not me doing things my way, right? Because it's above and beyond what needs to be done. The issue was the whole perception, right? And in a school district, it's all about perception. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interdepartmental politics that go on. I'm just there to fix computers, and even that apparently gets sucked into interdepartmental politics, right? Like, they didn't fix my computer the right way. Okay, so anyway, I, I kind of took that a little bit personally. Even, the, even though my boss was like, you know what, this is nothing. It's nothing to worry about. It's, it's just optics more than anything. You didn't do anything wrong. Like, they were very upfront about that, which is good to have a boss that does that. Um, but for me, I'm like complaining because I brought an iPad that wasn't 100% charged. You know, it was just like little things like that, right? And I'm like, okay. But there, it got to me a little bit. And so one day driving home, I was like, okay, Lord, I need to give this to you. It's already got me been out of shape up in my head and in my emotions. I'm putting this at the feet of the cross. Help me see this through the eyes of eternity. Like, that was the prayer I prayed. And from that point on, I've been great. You know, I'm like, all right, no worries. We're going to do this, and we're going to take care of things. So there's that. And then it, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, right? When wrong things happen, no matter if somebody gets a blessing because of a wrong thing, like, that wrong thing is nothing to rejoice about. Uh, so it understands unrighteousness, devalues the image of God. Whenever I treat somebody wrong, or whenever I see somebody treating somebody wrong, what's happening is somebody is wronging a child of God, and there's nothing to rejoice in that. So it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. Why? Because agape love, if you're embodying this agape love from Scripture, this agape love helps you understand the power and the freedom of truth, and not my truth or your truth. That's just ridiculous. Anytime you add a modifier on something, you just destroy the whole meaning of the word. I'm sorry. My truth is not truth at all. There is the truth, and then there's not the truth. It's the same thing with justice. Social justice is not justice at all. It totally dismantles the meaning of justice. So social justice, whatever it is, becomes, in a sense, injustice. So it, love rejoices in the truth because it understands the power and the freedom that real truth brings. And it rejoices when it's proclaimed because that truth, no matter how hard it is, no matter how offensive it is, no matter how much it hurts, truth can give life and freedom to people. And so love is going to rejoice in that. And it says it hopes and endures all things because agape love isn't dependent on physical or material gain. Agape love is immaterial, right? And so because of that, it can hope beyond what we can see in the natural. Like, you know, Paul goes on to say faith, hope, and love. These things are, are the, the great, you know, the, the most enduring things uh, from the love chapter. Because love gives you the ability to hope beyond what you can see. And it, it, it gives you a chance to see from eternity's perspective what the situation is like. And it endures all things because it knows. This agape love is what we call transcendent. It's, it's one of those few aspects that, 
that we have that, that can reach into eternity and grasp the eternal. That can grasp the heart of God, which isn't bound by finances. It isn't bound by life circumstances. It's bound by like God's eternality and God's everlasting goodness. And so we can endure any hardship on this earth. And there are countless stories of, of unimaginable hardships that people have gone through and have endured because they've grasped onto this love of God, this agape. that transcends nature and it reaches into and is capable of comprehending what we call the economy of heaven, right? The kingdom of heaven. So now after we've broken all that down, it takes a God kind of love to embody this whole list, right? Uh, this whole thing in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it takes a God kind of love to live that out, especially in our human relationships. Like I said, being uh, patient with slow drivers or even the idiosyncrasies of uh, the people that are close to us. It takes being kind to the person that thinks that your convictions, the truth that you have come to understand, right, from Scripture are an affront to them as a person. That you don't back away from the truth because somebody's offended that you believe their behavior is destructive, right? Because just look at it. Look at their life going down the tubes. But it's, it's having that conviction that they're making a lot of self-destructive decisions and they're offended because you proclaim the truth and then still being kind to them and still loving them. It doesn't fret over, over other people's successes. Oh, why did they get the promotion and I didn't? No. It, it's not grounded in our circumstances. There's no need to prove yourself in the eyes of others. We're not going to keep a checklist of offenses. You can try, and you'll just be a miserable person when you do. That's all you're doing is making yourself miserable. This God kind of love understands truth brings life and freedom and unrighteousness, no matter what it is, no matter... How you couch it as your truth or whatever, unrighteousness brings bondage and it brings death. Period. And if, if you're going to choose to believe a lie, you're going to choose to experience bondage and death. And it hopes endures because it empowers us to touch and see the values of heaven. All right, so I'm going to wrap it up in conclusion. Technically, okay, uh, I'm going to make this caveat. I have heard sermons about this conversation between Jesus and Peter at the end of John where they break down the Greek. And what it goes is like Jesus, you know, how he asks Peter, do you love me three times? And in the Greek it goes, Peter, do you agape me, right? Do you? And, and, and the, the sermon, uh, the preachers will make the point that like the agape is this it's divine love. It's only this, this transcendent divine love. Uh, and it, it kind of discounts all of the, the human level of it as well. But it's, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I philia, like brotherly love you. And then Jesus, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter goes, yes, Lord, I philia, right, brotherly love. And then the third time, Jesus switches it to, Jesus, do you Philia, me. Do you love me as a brother? And that's when Peter feels ex exhausted. He goes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, right? 
And so they, they make this thing where, where Jesus is trying to call Peter to this higher kind of love, and Peter's not willing to go beyond this brotherly kind of love. And from what I see in the Greek language, I, I don't see that happening. What I see happening here is uh, because there's so much overlap, right? If you had the Venn diagram of all the different loves, a lot of the loves share the same meaning in some contexts. And so more than likely, this is a, a linguistic play on words to kind of, so they're meaning the same thing in this sense, that it's not a divine versus a human love that's going on here, but it's mostly just a conversation that uses two different words to get the same point across. So because technically, if, we, if you look at the technicalities of agape from a dictionary, from a, a Greek linguistic point of view, Agape doesn't just mean this divine love. It also has a human element to it. <laughs> However, when we look at other parts of Scripture, when we look at 1 Corinthians, agape is the type of love that can only be, in my opinion, consistently enacted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus it's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. There's too much other word focus, this other focus to the benefit of another, to be able to do this kind of love without the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when we're doing it on our own, there is very often a selfish element to our acts of love. When we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, I think that's, that's about the only way that we can truly have an altruistic motive for the betterment of other people. And that has to come through the Holy Spirit. And to that end, it's something more than a mere human affection. It is something that's empowered by the Spirit of God, this love that can change other people because they never see this kind of love that is so other, otherly focused that the personal motives have been removed out of the equation. So that is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. That is love. So I'm going to send a quick prayer, and then we're going to have a, a little bit of time for uh, some words, and uh, then we'll uh, wrap it up. So dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. And I thank you, Lord, that you have promised this amazing kind of love that it does exist in humans apart from you. However, you have come and infused agape love with the power of your Holy Spirit to effect change in the lives of others. And I thank you for that love. I thank you for that power. I thank you, Lord, that you let that flow through us, Father, freely to bring life and freedom to other people. In Jesus' name. And so uh, right now, um... hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you are blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of the Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.